would, grab a Bible. Let's turn together to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It is so good to see you. We have a lot of people here this morning, and that's awesome, and uh, we're excited about that. Excited to be able to be out and together, and uh, excited to have you here. We have a number of visitors here with us. We're thankful for your presence, and we want you to feel welcome. We want you to know if there are any questions or concerns about anything you see or hear done or said in our services, that we'd love the opportunity to talk to you about it. And uh, if you're interested in joining this group and being a part of our family here, we'd love to talk to you more about that. So please just let us know any way that we can serve you or help you this morning. Thank you for being here. I want to begin by reading in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So he says in verse 8 here that bodily training is of some value, but training in godliness has an enduring value. So this is a great verse if you don't want to go work out, And you say, well, there's only some value in bodily training. I'm working on my godliness today. But his point is that godliness has a value now and a value later. And so he says, in the life here, in the present life, verse 8, and also in the life to come. And the reason for that is in verse 10, because we have our hope set on the living God. He is the reason that we look forward to the future with hope. It is extremely hard for people to live and to live well without hope. Hope is the idea that we look to the future with the expectation that the future will be better than the present. Things will not always be the way they are. In fact, they'll be better than they are now. And so we live in the present better because we expect a better future. But hope begs a question. It begs the question, why would we believe the future will be better than the present? What are we basing that hope on? In the early days of the uh, pandemic, our neighbor got a sign. And the sign says, it will be good again. And it says it over and over again, all the way down the sign. So I've been seeing that sign for a year now. And it's an interesting sign because to me, of course, when you see something every day, it starts to kind of get in your head. And uh, so I started thinking, well, what makes you say that? Why would somebody believe it will be good again? What makes us believe that even in a pandemic, things will eventually improve? See, there's hope there, but it's hope based on something. It's hope based on maybe our confidence in our politicians Or hope based maybe on confidence in scientists and scientific research, right? It's based in something. Or maybe just the old, you know, eventually things just tend to blow over. But it's hope based on something. When I was a child and I heard scary noises in the night, I had the firm belief that if I could completely cover my body with my blanket, nothing could get me. I had hope, so whenever I heard a noise, I never investigated it. That could lead to trouble. I would just huddle up. So I had hope. But what was the basis of my hope? Well, it was a strange and irrational idea 
that somehow I could be protected by something that couldn't truly protect me. When we think about what is the basis of our hope, that gets us into a little different realm because we start thinking, well, maybe it's, it's some government. Maybe it's some person that I trust. Maybe it's just me. But I believe that someone can help the future be better than the present. So I've been thinking about hope this week. And I want to assert this morning that good things are ahead. And I make that statement not rashly and not blindly. Good things are ahead because my hope is based on a God who is faithful. He keeps his word and now he has given words that promise a better future. Have you heard of the marshmallow test? This was a test in the 1970s where researchers took a number of kids in the three to five-year-old range, and they gave each child a marshmallow. And then the researcher said, I'm going to leave the room, and if you don't eat the marshmallow until I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow. And so you can just imagine what happens when you give three to five-year-olds a marshmallow, which I guess were considered more of a delicacy at the time in the 70s. But Some of the kids, as you can imagine, they ate the marshmallow right away. Some of them would wait a while, but then after time passed, a few minutes passed, they would go ahead and eat the marshmallow. Some kids, though, they waited and they they had different strategies where they would try to not look at the marshmallow or they would try to talk about or think about something else besides the marshmallow. And so, of course, some of them, the researcher came back and uh, they got the second marshmallow. So they tracked those kids over time. And what they found is that the kids who refused the marshmallow and just waited and waited and then got the second marshmallow, those kids did better across the board in all the different areas that you can measure life. Better test scores, better jobs, better marriages, etc. So it's intended to be a, a measure of sort of the delayed gratification. What do, we, what do we hope for? We hope for the second marshmallow so we can endure some trouble now because we hope things will be better in the future. But I read this week about a different test where they redid the marshmallow test and they changed one little part of it. That is, before they gave the kids the marshmallow, they did an experiment where the researcher was shown to be unreliable. She didn't do what she said she would do. And then they played the marshmallow test and they did another group where the researcher was reliable. And guess what they found? That when the researcher wasn't reliable, the kids ate the marshmallow and after an average of three minutes. And the kids with the reliable researcher ate the marshmallow after an average of 12 minutes. So they were four times more likely to wait. So why do I talk about marshmallows? What are we getting at? What I am saying is that our ability to wait and to hope depends in large part on the trust we have in the person who has made promises to us. If we trust that someone will do what they've said, then we can put up with a lot and we can hope for a lot. So God has proven his faithfulness time and again throughout history and now he has given us more promises that we hold on to. The question is, do we trust that God is able to do what he said? Will he do it or will he not? Good things are ahead because a faithful God has promised them. And I just want to spend a few minutes 
thinking through what some of those things are and how God is faithful despite some things that might lead us to believe that good things are not ahead and might tempt us toward fear or discouragement. So first of all, good things are ahead despite temptation. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to see how Paul reasons through the issue of temptation and testing by taking us back to God's faithfulness and how God can do what we need him to do in times of temptation. He has just been talking about, in 1 Corinthians 10, all the different ways the Israelites were tempted and sinned in the desert. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So first of all, he says temptations that we face in verse 13 are common to man. So just like the Israelites were tempted, we are going to be tempted. And some of the same things that they were tempted with, we will be tempted with. Because people are people. But the good news, he says in verse 13, is God is faithful. God can be depended on. God can be trusted. So when we face temptations and tests, we know that God is going to be there to do what he said he would do. What did he say he would do? Look again at verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we know that we won't be tempted with something that we can't handle, We know that there will be a way that we can get out of a situation without sin, and we know that we'll be able to endure temptation. We know that. How do we know? God is faithful. So that means that good things are ahead despite temptation. That doesn't mean that temptation is good. I'm not saying that. It means that temptation loses its sting when we know about the faithfulness of God. That's what Paul is doing. Don't forget, God is faithful. Now, I don't know what temptation means for everybody in this room this morning. I suspect that for some of us, temptation is about persistent sins. Maybe we're struggling with resentment and bitterness about something somebody did to us. And so the temptation is, can I get over it or not? Or perhaps for some of us, we're battling addiction. Addiction to alcohol, addiction to pornography, addiction to overeating. And, you know, we just keep coming back to the same thing over and over again, and we just don't seem to be able to beat it. Or, since the word for temptation here is a very broad word, it can also mean trial or testing. So it may be that it's not some specific sin that we're facing, but it's a situation that can be so overwhelming it wears us down and begins to discourage us. So maybe it's that our kids are just wearing us out. Or maybe it's that our in-laws are driving us crazy. Maybe it's my job is not going anywhere. Maybe it's a marriage that's less than ideal. But there is a situation in our lives that we say, man, this is a trial for me. So when I say good things are ahead, I don't mean that I can promise you that God will make that all better. I can't do that. But I can confidently say you will be able to endure it. I can confidently say this is not beyond your ability. I can confidently say that because God is faithful. So don't let the presence of temptation or testing rob you of your hope. Good things are ahead because whatever this situation, whatever this temptation is, you can endure it. And on the other side of it, 
there are good things. God is faithful. Second, good things are ahead despite frustrations with our culture. Look in 2 Thessalonians with me, chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. Second Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 1. Second Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, pray for us that the word will spread and bear fruit, And, verse 2, that we will be delivered from wicked and evil men. Lots of people don't have faith, he says, but the Lord is faithful. He can be counted on to guard us and establish us against evil. He can be depended on. Paul knew firsthand what it was like to deal with a godless culture. Paul looked those people in the face. He knew what it was like to literally suffer at the hands of evil people. Paul knew what it was like to feel the sting of the whip and to feel the cold of the prison cell and to feel the smack of a stone. So what did he do? He talks about Jesus' faithfulness. He will guard you. He will watch over you as you engage with evil people. Paul does not mean in this text that God won't let anything bad ever happen to you. I know Paul doesn't mean that because that's not what Paul lived. He knew that wasn't true. So what does he mean then in verse 3? He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Well, it means that evil people will never have the last word. I hear a lot of Christians bemoaning the evil of our culture. There is certainly evil in our culture. There always has been evil in our culture because our culture is part of the world. And Christians always are more or less in battle with the ideas and values of the world. But sometimes that disenchantment with culture can be so overwhelming that it leads us to despair because we begin to wonder, will things ever be good again? I think you could see that. In the fact that President Obama runs on a campaign of hope and change. And then President Trump runs on a campaign of making America great again. Everyone is saying, there's a better hope in the future. And we begin to wonder, is a man, is a party going to change the evil that we see? And so we begin to say, will it ever be what God wants it to be? What's missing from that equation, what Paul puts into it, is that the Lord is faithful. This is about God's faithfulness. What is God going to do with evil people and an evil culture? God is going to do what God has always done. He is going to let evil ultimately be defeated. In fact, it helps me to remember that our time is not the first time that evil people have risen up against God and against God's people. I mean, this has been playing out from the beginning. But it helps me to remember what God thinks about that. This is Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's funny to God 
Not in the sense that it's funny that people are evil and doing evil things. It's funny that they think they can stop God. That they think they'll win. That they think they'll defeat God's people. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It doesn't trouble God. So when I say good things are ahead, I don't mean that I think our culture is going to do a 180. I can't promise that. What I mean is that nothing that happens in our culture changes God's goodness and God's power and God's faithfulness. Nothing. People don't change that. Good things are ahead and evil people don't change that one bit. Third, good things are ahead when we lose someone we love. I want you to go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're back just a page or two here. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thessalonians had the same problem we do. They began to despair as they watched their loved ones die. And they began, maybe it was as more and more people died, more and more of those they cared about, that they were so overwhelmed that they began to doubt. And so Paul says, you need to remember some things that are a word from the Lord. You need to remember that there is hope for the people of God in spite of death, that there are still good things ahead. There is confidence in these verses. I want you to look at them again. Verse 14, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He will bring them with him. In verse 15, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And he says in verse 15 later, they will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. In other words, these are not things that Paul is saying, I hope this is true, but I don't know why. Instead, these are things God has said and affirmed and God himself will do. Jesus himself will come. This is a word from Jesus. If Jesus rose, we will rise. And so he says, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. It's important that we live confident that we will see our loved ones again. That we're going to go with them to be with the Lord together forever. We have some in our congregation who have buried loved ones recently. We look over the course of this last year, there is no one that's been untouched by this virus in one way or another. And for many, it has been a heartbreaking thing because people have died that we love, sometimes without even being able to see their loved ones in their last moments. That is a remarkably hard thing. And my heart goes out to you. There are no words I can give you that can change the hurt of that. But because we believe in Jesus, 
because we see his resurrection as yet another way God has kept his word, we believe that we will rise too. And so Jesus says, we will see them again. I believe that's the focus of this text. They're not going to go up apart from you and we're not going to go up apart from them. That we will go together to meet the Lord. So, just like those kids with the marshmallows, it's important that we know the one who has promised us this is trustworthy and dependable. Because as our hearts hurt, we need to know. We need to know that this will come true and that good things are ahead. So as you walk through that valley of grief, know that Jesus walks with you. Know that good things are ahead. Good things are ahead when we get worn down. Turn the page to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So here, this is a prayer for the Thessalonians. He says, I pray that God will sanctify you completely, keep every part of you, soul, spirit, body, blameless at the coming of Jesus. So Paul is content that whatever deficiencies exist in the Thessalonians, God can handle them. Whatever flaws they have, whatever areas they need to grow in, that God can give them the fullness of what they are lacking. God can sanctify them completely. And the concern seems to be that as we approach the coming of Jesus and we say, and we look forward to that day, we look at ourselves and we say, I am not ready for that. And sometimes the, the concerns about ourselves, the concerns about our families, the concerns about the church, all of it just rolls up into a big ball that's so overwhelming that we say, I don't know. And we begin to question and we begin to doubt. I put that as we begin to get worn down. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You know who this is we're dealing with. This is not covering yourself with the blanket and hoping for the best. This is a God who always keeps his word. And if he can sanctify you completely and fill in all the gaps that you haven't been able to fill in, if he can do it, he surely will do it. Be confident in him. Not confident in yourself, but not worn down. For me, this is, I I would say worn down is the best way I could describe it for myself. I just wonder, if I'm going to make it the whole way, can I really get there? Can I keep living the righteous life? How will Jesus think of me? Won't he be embarrassed by all the selfishness I haven't been able to work through? All the things that I still do that disappoint me, much less him. I work hard, I get tired, and I just wear out. It helps me to see that good things are ahead. To see that I serve a faithful God who has taken on the project of saving me, and it is a project, and that he will see it through all the way to the end. He will sanctify you completely and that your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good things are ahead because my hope is not in myself. It's not in some man, but it's hope in a God who is faithful. So when you feel like you're barely hanging on 
barely making it through the week, barely getting to the building for church services, barely overcoming discouragement. You're just barely there. Take courage. Good things are ahead, even when you get worn down. Keep following. Keep trusting. Don't give up because God is at work. He will surely do it. The last thing I want to say is that good things are ahead at the end. I want you to go with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We're going to read the first four verses here. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So John sees a vision of new heaven and new earth. It's the place where God's people will live for eternity. And he begins to describe some of what that state will be like. He says in verse 3 that God will live with man. This is what God has always wanted, and it's what man has always botched. God has always tried to live with man And man has always found ways to drive God away, whether that's in the Garden of Eden, whether that's in Israel, in the temple, and sometimes when that's God wanting to live in our lives and we just don't want to make room for him. And he says, the dwelling place of God is now with man in the fullness, fully realized sense. God has made it all better. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Every tear, death, mourning, crying, pain, all the things that make life unbearable, all the things that hurt us, now they're the former things. That's the way it used to be, back before. Can you see that? Things have changed forever at the end. God will wipe away every tear. Good things are ahead. I wonder how that will work. Have you ever thought about it? How does God wipe away every tear? How does God rid us of pain? I don't even know what life is like without pain. Do you? Without suffering and death and tears? I wonder if we'll remember the things that have broken our hearts here. I wonder if we'll sort of see them redeemed in our memories and look back and say, now I get it. I wonder if we'll see the purpose in all the hard things we had to go through. In fact, I wonder if we'll remember them at all. I wonder if we'll even care. This is a promise that God will take away the pain and will take away pain itself. And it's almost too sweet to even imagine. I'm the type of person who struggles to see the good in things. I'm looking for the cloud and the silver lining and the thorn on the rose. That's me. If there's pain and death, I have a hard time seeing around the pain and death to the good. And this is where 
There is no cloud and it's all silver lining and there is no thorn, it's all rose. Contemplating the end is where we need hope the most, but it's also what gives us the most hope. What happens when it's my turn to go to the grave? What happens when it's my turn to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? What happens when I stand before God? What makes me think that it will be good again? Is that about me? You know, someday I'll be able to fix it all. Someday it'll get better just, you know, because? Is it about some man, some government, some scientist? Is that it? What makes me think it will be good again? It is only a faithful God who has promised us this incredible thing and then shown himself at every turn to always do what he says. We're talking about a God who cannot lie and has kept his word through exoduses and through deserts and conquests and through faithless kings and misunderstood prophets and through exile and fiery furnaces and and foreign godless rulers and through small towns like Bethlehem and Nazareth and small people like fishermen. And he has changed the world in little things to keep his word. He has kept his word to the degree that he let his only begotten son be abused and beaten and rejected and killed. And yet he has kept his word by raising him from the dead and enthroning him on high so that even now we can say God always keeps his word even when it looks like there's no way this could happen again. He just keeps doing it. And frankly, brothers and sisters, we've seen it in our own lives where over and over again God provides and comes through and he helps us resist temptation and he gives us what we need for the day every day. Over and over again, we can sing great is thy faithfulness. And so when we look at promises like these that we say, it's almost too good to be true, we could say, but I know it has to be true because I know who said it. This is a God who always keeps his word. And when we really, really want it to be true, like I do with these verses, I can depend on him. Good things are ahead. We're going to be with God, free of pain and suffering and death. Good things are ahead. And when you have that view, it kind of makes the rest of this seem like small potatoes. Yes, temptation is hard. And yes, we get frustrated with our culture and the time in which we live. And yes, there are times we battle death and we see those we love and we lose them and we grieve for them. And yes, we get exhausted. But doesn't it give it some context to say there will be a time when all of that is wiped away? And we'll be with God. We need hope to have any quality of life. But hope springs from the one we trust. So the question is, how is your connection to the one in whom you hope? And is there something that needs to change in that? These blessings that we're talking about, this hope, this promise that good things are ahead, that's for the people of God. That's for God's people that he is faithful to and protecting and watching over. But what about you? Is that something that describes you? Are you one of God's children? Do you need to make a change in your life to make your life right with God? 
This is the time that we've set aside to invite you. If there's a change that we can help you make by being baptized into Christ, by helping you pray about something that you've done that you know you need forgiveness from God for, if there is a need that you have, please come to the front as we stand and sing.